Continuing in the parables, we are now Luke chapter 16, the first 13 verses. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that his, this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that I, when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into, into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is a hard parable to understand. I mean, really hard. So hard that I intended to skip it and uh, move on to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But uh, last Wednesday, I was eating lunch with the Young at Heart crew, and uh, someone asked me if I might be preparing uh, for the the parable of the unjust steward. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really thinking of that. It's uh, widely recognized, uh, not only among uh, scholars and commentators, but, you know, the general population of the church, that this is the hardest parable to understand that Jesus ever taught. So, uh, anyway, this person I was talking to was interested in uh, hearing how I might approach the parable. Uh, being it uh, difficult to understand. By the way, while we're talking about difficult to understand, remember uh, that Jesus sometimes explained parables to his disciples, and sometimes he didn't. There is an occasion in, recorded uh, in the book of Matthew where Jesus has told a parable to his disciples, and, and then he says, you understand what you've just heard? And uh, they're all, yeah. I think they might have been lying because they didn't often understand too much of what Jesus said. Remember, um, some of you still uh, are, are in school and you're in a, uh, a class that's maybe just a little bit over your head, the material is, and so the, the teacher, professor will say, everybody understand the material that's been presented so far? 
And everybody sits there quiet, which is the status quo for saying, yeah, we understand. However, you're sitting there and you don't have a clue as to what has been said. Your only hope is that someone who doesn't mind looking dumb publicly is going to raise his or her hand and say, I don't understand. I was in school once with someone who was really sharp. He must have really had a, a, a heart of compassion. Uh, but, but he would often you know, raise his hand and say, uh, sir or, or madam, uh, I, I don't understand. Uh, could, could you please go over that again? The guy's a straight A student. He understood. He was just helping out the rest of us who were too embarrassed to admit that we didn't understand. So I am standing before you today as someone who is not too embarrassed to tell you, I don't understand this parable. I mean, there, there are so many different approaches you can take. And uh, I, I'm only going to draw out uh, you know, one major thing and maybe touch on a, a few others, but uh, I'm not going to spend six weeks uh, on this parable uh, like I did with uh, the one that precedes it. So anyway, uh, getting back to the flow of the uh, conversation I was having with this person who uh, was asking me if I was going to be preaching on the, the uh, parable of the unjust steward. And uh, yeah, I couldn't help but wonder if this person just wanted to watch me squirm. <laughs> uh, so uh, in, in order to protect the person with whom I had the conversation from embarrassment, I, I will not tell you who it is. Uh, who asked me if I might be preaching on this parable. Okay, it was Richard. <laughs> so if I'm going to squirm, uh, I need some company. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Um, actually, I'm, I'm really glad we're, we're doing th this parable uh, because even though a lot of things in this parable bother us, they make us uncomfortable, they, they make us squirm, uh, it, it's disturbing to us uh, because it seems like Jesus is commending this guy for cheating him, stealing from him. And uh, I just want to show you this uh, closing line here in verse 8. Uh, the, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then we go to verse 9, and he says, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Did Jesus really say that? I don't see any red letters, so um, maybe he, he didn't. Uh, yeah, he, he really said it. So let me ask, you know, is, is this a problem for you? Is it a problem uh, for you to have Jesus saying, follow the behavior of a wasteful, uh, profligate, prodigal, deceitful, thieving, selfish, conniving, unprincipled person? Well, it is for me. It makes me squirm just a little. Well, maybe more than just a little. <laughs> um, perhaps this illustration will, will help. Um, there was a school teacher in New York City um, who taught in a district that, that was pretty rough. And there were some rough neighborhoods in New York, and, and he had one. And um, on his first day uh, teaching, um, he's replacing someone who quit. And so he, he gets up there and he starts to teach. And at an appointed time, I mean, there's no bell that rang or uh, anything like that, 
But just all of a sudden, at what seemed to be an appointed time, uh, the, the class gets up and moves, moves to the back, and they start to shoot craps. Uh, I don't really know a whole lot about this, but just to show you how innocent I really am. Uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're, they're shooting craps, and uh, there was this metal piece there that they were you know, you know, rolling the dice on. And uh, the teacher uh, just let them do it. He didn't do anything. He didn't know what to do. Uh, but after school was over, he came up with an idea. Uh, he knew a little bit about electricity. Uh, so he, he wired that metal plate with um, an electrical current so that whoever went and uh, you know, started to, to play or roll the dice uh, was going to get zapped. And uh, so the next day came, and at the appointed time, the class goes back, and they start shooting craps. And the, the first guy who touches it is really a big guy, and he gets zapped. And uh, he looks up, and he sees the teacher just kind of grinning a little bit. And he uh, acknowledges, uh, nice touch, prof. Uh, so I, I, I tell you that just to let you know that uh, there are some occasions in real life when you uh, see someone who does something to you that's not really kind, but you admire their cleverness. Um, just to finish the story, this guy who uh, got zapped, he said, uh, well, uh, Prof, called him Prof, uh, even though you got me on, with, with that zapping thing, um, I, I'm going to make this even with you, so... You meet me after school, um, out in the back. So uh, the principal heard about this, and so he goes up and he talks to the teacher there, and he says, you got yourself in this mess? You're on your own. <laughs> so uh, not only was his teacher uh, really good at the subject that he taught, and not only was he really good with electricity, but he was also a Golden Gloves boxing champion in his weight class. <laughs> And so he took on all those guys one by one and knocked them down. And then the education began. Maybe Jesus is doing something like that. You know, he tells us a story that kind of knocks us down a little bit, makes us wonder and kind of gets us all bizarre thinking. Maybe this is where he wants us to be. You know, Jesus didn't explain every parable. And we wonder why he didn't that. The, the, the simple ones he, he explained. Well, maybe they seem simple to us because he explained them. But, but nonetheless, uh, there, there are many parables that Jesus tells, including this one. That, uh, it's just really hard to figure out. And so we wonder, why did Jesus not explain everything? Why did he not explain all the parables in the Bible, so that it would be easy enough for us to understand what he's saying. Well, it may be that Jesus wants his disciples to come to him and ask for an explanation. Just to admit you don't understand, admit that maybe you're not as intelligent as you thought you were. So how do we do that? Well, it's not like Jesus is a, a, a resident member here that we can just go to him at any time. Wouldn't that be nice? But we, we can't do that, so we go to his representatives, uh, which would not only be people in, in the church, but the church universal, and not only those living, but those who have uh, lived in other generations and have left their works for us to, to study. 
And uh, I'll have to say that I've read some really good commentators uh, on this, and none of them really agree. There's, there is no consensus as to what the, the real, deep, primary message is in, in this parable. So uh, there's my prelude to uh, what I'm about to say. So I, I want us to, this is kind of a, a simple approach. Um, basically, uh, what I want to do is uh, find out what it is Jesus is saying in this parable. There's my outline. What is Jesus saying in this parable? But can't, we can't answer that question until we know what Jesus was saying to his original audience. So what was he saying to them? What did they get from this parable? But before we can answer that question, we need to know something about the setting, about the, uh, um, the, the context of what Jesus is saying, and uh, also some of the cultural um, background of his original audience. So let, let's start there. So in order to understand this parable, we need to look at the context in which it's presented as well as the cultural background. So we'll begin with the, the context. So th this parable is sandwiched right between the more familiar parables of the prodigal son and of the rich man and Lazarus. And those are the ones that are well known to us because uh, they, they just fascinate us. Uh, the parable we're looking at today about the uh, uh, the, the, the manager who was uh, shrewd but uh, was unjust, uh, that just per perplexes us. But it, there, there's, it's no coincidence that this parable we're looking at today comes right smack between the prodigal son and rich man and Lazarus. You know, one of the, difficult, one of the reasons why we have such difficulty understanding Scripture is that we don't always consider the context of a given passage. We just kind of rip it out and, uh, of its context and examine it as a standalone story. You know, sort of like uh, some devotional books are organized. You know, you turn to it uh, for the devotion for today, and uh, you may have a reading from uh, the Psalms, and then uh, you look at the next day, and it may be from Ephesians, and the next day it may be from the book of Matthew, and they're all just kind of standalone things. And uh, you get some nuggets uh, from that, but you can't really understand a passage of Scripture unless you consider it and its content. So we've established the context. It's between these two other well-known parables. And uh, so I want to start here with, uh, you know, who Jesus was speaking to. Uh, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear, hear him. This is going back to chapter 15, the prelude before all the, all the parables about the lost things. And the, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. And that parable uh, had three parts to it. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin. And, uh, well, actually, I, I misspoke. Uh, there, there were three uh, episodes. Uh, there was the episode of the lost sheep and the episode of the lost coin. And then the episode of the lost son, and then the episode of the other lost son. Uh, it's all one parable. 
And then we come to this parable that we're looking at today. And you know, there are a lot of similarities between uh, the, the, the two parables. Um, so in, in each of the parables, the, the one about the parable of the lost things and the parable of the unjust manager, uh, in each instance we find something of tremendous value that's been lost. And, uh, well, in the first parable anyway, there's a great rejoicing. Um, but in the parable of the unjust steward, you know, he's rejoicing some too because his future is now secure. Um, you know, all of the parables uh, are a means that Jesus uses uh, in response to this accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes that he cannot be a man of God because of the people he hangs with. And who is he hanging with? Well, he's, he's fraternizing with tax collectors and sinners. And everybody knows that if you associate with those kind of people, that you cannot be a man of God. And so that's the accusation. And Jesus responds to that accusation with a, a bunch of parables. Uh, the, the, the parables about the lost things, parable about the unjust steward, and then parable about the rich man and Lazarus. All of that is part of a response to the accusation that he's not a man of God. So uh, we, we come to uh, uh, verse 14 in chapter 16 now. Uh, this is the, the verse after Richard read. Uh, it says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. Uh, that word ridiculed in the original language means uh, literally uh, they turned up their noses at him, you know. It's kind of arrogant, uh, despicable kind of uh, attitude that they had. So what that tells us then is if, if they responded this way by turning up their noses, it, it has to mean they understood what he was saying. So that helps us, doesn't it? At least the Pharisees understood what Jesus is saying uh, in this parable. Uh, it's not so sure to us, but you know, before we can know what something means to us, we, know, we need to know what it meant to the people that was originally spoken to. But uh, we'll get to that, but, but, but for now, I, I want to continue uh, to understand the context of, of this difficult uh, parable and um, comparing uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son with uh, the unjust uh, steward or unjust manager. You know, each one takes the wealth of a wealthy landowner and squanders it. Prodigal son lived recklessly. The unjust manager offers extreme discounts after having mismanaged his boss's accounts. Uh, he's managed them so recklessly that he is fired on the spot. Another similarity. Each one comes up with a way to engineer his own salvation by asking someone to find a job for him. Now the prodigal son rehearses over and over in his mind, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against uh, you, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, as most of the versions say, one of your hired hands, but uh, the, the more uh, careful uh, translations would say, uh, make me as a, as a skilled craftsman. Uh, get a job for me. Get me an apprenticeship with, with someone uh, where I can make a good wage. Uh, each one, again, comparing the prodigal with the unjust steward, each one comes up with uh, um, a, a scheme where uh, 
the well, well, the wealthy landowner in uh, the, the case of the unjust uh, manager and with uh, the wealthy father in the case of the prodigal son, um, they, they both are treated with lavish grace. And I want this to sink in here just for a moment. It, you remember the prodigal son, how he wild, lived recklessly and, and wildly and uh, just you know, burned through his inheritance in, in a short amount of time. And how the father, when he uh, saw him coming uh, up the road, just lavished grace upon him, kissed him and put the robe on him. Uh, you, you still got that scene in your mind. And you think about, oh, what? measure of grace this is. And now we come to this parable and the unjust steward has just figured out a way that he can benefit by cheating his boss even more. He's been fired because he's been incompetent but now he is going to take more from this man that he works for by cheating him out of resources by offering deep discounts. And what is the response of this wealthy landowner to this unjust manager? Well, he pays him a compliment. Tells him he's shrewd. Now, why would he do that? Well, we couple that with what else happened or didn't happen uh, on, on that occasion. You know, the wealthy landowner could have gone back to the man or to the men uh, with whom his unjust uh, manager had made deals and said, look, this guy here, this manager, uh, I fired him. I sent him to go get the books and on his way back, you know, to bring the books to me. Uh, he, he cooked these, these books uh, along the way. And he did that illegally. It was not uh, with, uh, with my authority. I did not sanction this. So I'm sorry as I can be, but you still owe me the full amount. Well, that would have killed the whole spirit because by now the you know, whole village is all excited. They're happy. You know, debts have been uh, reduced. It's time to celebrate. And now if this guy comes in and lowers the boom, uh, there's going to be consequences. And so the, the wealthy landowner recognizes that. And so he, he lets this guy get away with it. God ever do anything like that for you? Let this sink in just for a moment. We think sometimes that God will extend grace to me, but he goes just so far. And then I've got to make up the difference. What we learn from this very difficult parable is that God extends grace to people who don't deserve it. And he illustrates that magnificently by showing someone who is incompetent with what's been entrusted to him. And then he's... Uh, he, he, he cheats him uh, for, his, for his own gain. And the man is, uh, he, he, the wealthy landowner lets uh, those transactions stand. Man, he's showing grace all around. This is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of God we serve. He is effusive in grace. He lavishes grace on those who don't deserve it. Prodigal son didn't deserve it. The elder son didn't deserve it. The unjust manager doesn't deserve it. But Jesus seems to delight in creating 
parables, instances where we can kind of get a picture in our mind of just how lavish the grace of God really is. So, in light of this extraordinary grace that the unjust manager has just received, what does he do? Well, we would like to read that he went back to his, his boss, uh, to the wealthy landowner, and uh, repented and confessed and uh, said it was all a scheme to, to benefit himself. And, uh, but, you know, he, he doesn't do any of that. We're familiar with Romans 5.20. We may not know the reference right away, but when you hear the verse, you're going to be familiar with it. It, it says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You get that? Is that sinking in? You see what the unjust manager is showing us with his life? He's saying, you, you can sin, you can sin willfully, and God will still forgive you. That's how lavish his grace really is. All right. So here's, here's the context. Uh, this parable's in the middle of two other parables that Jesus has to respond to the accusation that he's not really uh, a man of God because of who he hangs out with. And uh, Jesus is showing, uh, yeah, I not only hang out with these people, I fraternize with them. And I... Uh, these people who, who, who would even cheat me if, if they could get away with it, uh, I'll still forgive them. That's quite a response. Um, but that's the context. Now let's move to some of the cultural uh, background stuff. I, I find these things interesting, uh, fascinating actually. You know, when we read the Bible, we often assume uh, and we, we read it with Western eyes. Now, by that I mean we, we assume that, well, the culture in uh, a first century uh, Middle East is identical uh, to the culture that we have here in uh, 21st century in, in, in the West. But uh, according to some scholars, you know, there is evidence from history and archaeology that helps us understand the culture of the kind of business practices that Jesus alludes to here in this parable. So in, in our culture, it, it works sort of like this. Uh, an employee at the manager level keeps track of, of, of the monies that are owed to the employer by his customers. Uh, so if uh, you have a uh, someone who manages your retirement account or, or something like that. You know, we have someone who, who, who sort of does that. He, he uh, manages the, the, the funds uh, that are yours. And uh, he gets a commission off of the uh, securities that he purchases on, on your behalf. So, uh, you know, you don't pay him directly. Uh, he just makes a commission off of it. And the, the, the historians and archaeologists tell us that uh, this is the way business was transacted in the first century in the Middle East. Um, you, may, you may remember that tax collectors, they had, uh, it's almost like a franchise from Rome uh, where they were required to collect a certain amount uh, from the, the populace, from the taxpayer, and uh, they would just add their commission onto it. So they wouldn't give them an itemized bill 
where it would say, okay, attached uh, to Rome, uh, I'll just make up something and say uh, 30 denarii, and uh, then you say commission uh, of the uh, uh, tax collector, uh, 20 denarii, you know, something like that. Uh, well, people are going to have a fit. But if you just give them the bill, say, you know, here's what Rome demands, uh, you know, they've got no choice but, but to do that. And the, the, the archaeologists, the, the historians say, uh, this is how business also would have been transacted here with this unjust uh, steward or manager. Um, he uh, would have... Uh, presented a bill uh, to the clients there, say, you know, you are the master, say 100 bushels or, you know, whatever the unit was. And uh, he would have added his uh, commission to that so nobody would really know how much that commission was. Uh, it, it works sort of like this in our culture, too. You know, when you go to buy a car at a dealership and, uh, you know, you haggle back and forth, and I kind of enjoy that experience. Uh, sometimes if I'm not having a good time, then I, I, I might leave. Uh, which I've been known to do, but nonetheless, I'm getting sidetracked here. But uh, when you arrive at, at a deal, you know, they present you with a contract. And so they've got sales price there, and they've got taxes uh, that are due, and then they have these dealer fees uh, that, that they call, uh, uh, I don't even know what they call it. Anyway, they're uh, dealer fees that they just tack on there. But they do not itemize commissions. You will not see salesman commissions so much, sales managers commissions so much, general managers commission so much, dealership commission so much. It's all built in there because if you saw all of those, that, that list of commissions, you, you would just freak out. One time that happened to me, I was selling um, merchandise uh, for a corporation and uh, I'd had a, a pretty good sales cycle, and so I got my uh, check. And, you know, there's always a, a statement in there that tells you, you know, uh, you made this sale and you made this much money and here's your commission. And so I'm, I'm looking at that, and then I saw something that I was not supposed to see. It was the commission schedule that only the office personnel was supposed to see. So it had my commission, and then under that it had sales manager's commission, general manager's commission, company's commission, all of that substantially, substantially higher than my commission. So, well, this, is, this is not right. You know, I'm, I'm doing the work out here, and these guys are getting, I'm supporting these guys. Maybe I could change jobs with them. You know, I could get up and hammer on them, get out there and sell more, and, and I think they could run out there and, and do what I've been doing. But it really upset me. So this would have really upset the clients if they had seen the commission schedule that was attached to the bill. But they don't see that. Now, some commentators have said that what this unjust steward did was when he went to the uh, clients here and said, here quickly, uh, what's your bill say? 100 bushels? Okay, quickly write 50. But what he was doing was erasing his commission. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it was, I'm just saying that that might be a, a, a possibility. But nonetheless, the uh, unjust steward is, is going to these people and uh, he's offering huge discounts uh, to, to the clients. And uh, something I found uh, really interesting in the text, uh, see if I can find the, the verse here. Uh, 
All right, here we go. Uh, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your, boil, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Uh, this is a genuine situation where you have a salesman and a client because the salesman is always in a hurry. He always wants you or she always wants you to sign that contract quickly. Uh, this deal will expire at midnight. Uh, you know, you don't want to lose out on this. So, I mean, this is a real deal here. This is not just some smoke and mirror stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, to, re to reduce it by half, yeah, that guy's going to uh, uh, take that opportunity. So you wonder, why then did the unjust uh, manager have the client write in his handwriting on the bill uh, that it was 50 and not 100? Well, once the wealthy landowner gets a hold of the books and he looks in there and he sees that a deal has been offered to a client and the client in his own handwriting has signed off on that, that is evidence that the uh, wealthy landowner uh, has agreed to this deal. And if he goes back on it, uh, his reputation is going to suffer. So you see how shrewd uh, this unjust manager really is. So anyway, uh, he, he does the same thing with someone else. The percentage is different, but the uh, amount of savings was uh, about the same. So I want to back up here to uh, verse 2 in the account where the uh, unjust manager has been uh, discovered to have been incompetent and in his duties and so the uh, the owner uh, the landowner will say uh, uh, he says turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager uh, you know what he was doing is he is firing him on the spot and you're done here only problem is that the unjust manager didn't have the books with him. <laughs> and so while he goes to get the books, you know, he has time to think, what am I, good, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm, I'm, I can't work. I'm, I'm too old to dig. I'm too proud to beg. You know, there are certain requirements you had to meet to be a beggar, like being blind or missing a limb or something like that. But, you know, he was reasonably healthy and in good shape. He, he couldn't do that. Uh, so what is he going to do? And then he comes up with this scheme. And so you can kind of see the, the, the blackmail element here. You know, once these uh, clients sign there in their own handwriting that they agreed to a substantial discount, uh, they know that they are going to be obligated to this guy. And why would they hire someone that they know is a thief? I mean, why would you hire a known crook to work for you? Because you don't want him working for your competitor. This is a shrewd guy. He'll figure out some way to take business away from you and get it for his client or his, his boss or maybe even for himself. And so you, you want to make sure um, that, you know, all your bases are covered. So this man's employment, uh, along with his housing, seemed to pretty well be guaranteed. Do things like this happen in real life? Um, there is an example from uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. is widely regarded by just about everybody as the greatest president this country ever had. Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet uh, appointed 
men who were not of his party. They were not of the same way of thinking that he was. And so uh, someone asked him once, you know, why do you hire guys like this who disagree with you? Uh, why don't you hire someone who is going to support you in your decisions and your policies and, and so forth? And uh, Lincoln's response is that he wanted those who were in opposition to work for him and not for his opponents. True, right? He also wanted to keep them where he could keep a close eye on them. You know, if they are in the White House or if they are uh, somewhere nearby where some of his trusted associates can see what they're up to. Of course, these are the days before cell phones and Internet and such as that. Uh, so it might have been a little easier. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, you know, Lincoln did sort of like what we see the wealthy landowner doing in, in this parable. All right. Uh, so there is the cultural, historical background, the context. Uh, another question we need to answer uh, real quickly, quickly before we get to the final point, which will be brief. But what was Jesus saying to those to whom he originally spoke? That is, what did his original audience uh, hear? What, what was the, the message? Uh, well, Jesus is speaking to two groups of people. He is speaking uh, to his disciples uh, as it says here in verse 1, he also said to his disciples, and then he starts the parable. Uh, but then when we go back to the previous chapter, in uh, chapter 15, and uh, it's clear there that Jesus is responding to the Pharisees because they accused him of hanging around people who were unsavory, and so therefore Jesus can't be a, a man of God. So Jesus is speaking to do two different groups of people. So, uh, First of all, what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? The Pharisees were God's stewards. They were his managers, you might say. They sat on Moses' seat. And they did not properly manage God's affairs. And so God was about to remove them. This happened not too much longer uh, from the time that Jesus was pronouncing this. Um, in um, 70 AD, Titus Vespasian came and uh, just leveled Jerusalem, the, the whole city, the temple, everything. And so not only was the temple gone, not only, not only was the city destroyed, but that was the end of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have not existed as a separate sect since that time. So uh, here's what he's saying to them. In um, Matthew 21, 43, uh, Jesus said this after a, an, another parable, but uh, it's, it's related. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's telling them that they are like the unjust manager in the sense that they mismanage God's affairs, and so they are being fired. But the Pharisees are not the only ones Jesus is talking to in this parable. He's also talking to his disciples. And what is Jesus saying to his disciples? Is he saying, you see this man over here, this unjust manager? Be like him. He's a shrewd guy. Uh, did he really say that? Didn't Jesus just tell the Pharisees that they were being fired because they mismanaged God's affairs? Yeah, he, he did. But Jesus is also speaking to his disciples. 
And so here's what he does. He, he uses one parable to speak to two groups, two different messages. One message for the Pharisees, another message for the disciples, one parable. So the parable means one thing to the Pharisees, something entirely different to the disciples. So he's pointing to the unjust manager and he's commending him. And we wonder why. You know, why is Jesus commending him? Verse 9, he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So in verse 9, Jesus is not praising the dishonesty of this man, but the ability of the unjust manager to recognize the generosity of his master to see what was coming and use what he had at the time to obtain something far greater. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is saying to his disciples, part of it anyway. He wants them to recognize the generosity of the master, that is, God. He wants them to see what is coming, the, the day of judgment. Um, not only the ultimate day of judgment, but uh, the day of judgment in 70 AD, uh, that, that's there too. He wants them to use the resources of the master to lavishly extend grace to others. This parable, like the parables before it and the parables that follow it, is about the lavish grace of God that is extended to those who do not deserve it. So, last point. What is Jesus saying to us in this parable? This is what we've been waiting for. Well, maybe Jesus is using this parable to show that all of us are managers of what has been entrusted to us. You know, what are we going to use it for? To, to get things, to get power? Might we use those resources to, to make friends, to evangelize them that they may be converted and uh, have their future secured? What will we do with the resources that God has trusted to us as individuals? What will we do with the resources God has entrusted to us as a corporate body? Now, in the end, though, this parable is not a story about business ethics. And it's not really primarily about stewardship. It's about a deeper level of motivation, which is set before us in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and money. So here's the deeper level of motivation that Jesus sets before us in this parable. Ready for it? What do you care about most? On a Friday afternoon in 1990, a businessman staggered to the steps of his Los Angeles office. He had been shot and was uh, sorely wounded in the chest. And when he came in, he called out the names of his three children. But clutched in his hand was his $10,000 Rolex watch 
By the way, this is not a $10,000 Rolex watch. It's a $25 Timex watch, which you know, just keeps on ticking. <laughs> but the point is, before this man died of the gunshot wound to the chest, and that attack came because there was a rash of robberies called the Rolex robberies. They were looking for people with Rolex watches. The man wouldn't give his up, so the robber shot him. What mattered to him most? Was he really willing to sacrifice his life to hold on to that Rolex, which he was going to lose anyway? You know what Jesus is saying to us? He's asking a question. What do you care about most? Let's pray. Our Father and God, we acknowledge that, that the power of your word uh, is, is evident even when we don't clearly understand everything you're saying. As we know it's your word the things that we do understand not only give us an encouragement, they certainly give us reason to think about the things that matter most. Create within us a desire to know your word more accurately, more clearly. Create within us a desire to know you better as you really are and not as we imagine you to be or might want you to be. Uh, create in us a desire, a, a heart uh, to take your precious gospel message uh, to those who are deeply in the debt of the currency of sin and be able to communicate to them that it doesn't really matter what you've done, how seriously, how egregiously you may have sinned. The grace of God is so, so lavish that it covers all of that. Thank you for lavishing this grace upon us. Through Christ we pray.